Just a quick sound check, how's the sound in the back? So a student asks the Zen master, what happens after death? And the master says, I don't know. The student says, what do you mean you don't know? You're a Zen master. The master says, yes, but I'm not a dead one. <laughs> so at long last, we're at the final hindrance, the hindrance of doubt. And this afternoon, each of us is going to say a few words about doubt. Um, just an overview, the hindrance of doubt can manifest as doubt in yourself, doubt in your own ability to uh, transform the inner landscape, doubt in your ability to even do this. It's hard on the body. It can be grinding at times. It's doubt in the usefulness of the practice or the techniques, doubt in the teachers, doubt in the institution. Maybe you're thinking, you know, I really should have gone to the crystal sound bath retreat instead. <laughs> that would have been much better. <laughs> and when hindrance manifests, when doubt manifests as a hindrance, we get indecisive, we're uncertain, we lack confidence, we hesitate, we vacillate, it becomes very hard to settle into a stream of practice and hard to be with this moment's experience. In its simplest manifestation, it can just be that we don't quite understand the instructions. You know, we're not really sure how we're supposed to be directing our attention, how we're supposed to be spending the periods of walking. Um, and that can easily be remedied by just asking a question or getting support from a teacher. More dramatically, doubt can have flavors of like a deep, fiery inner conflict that really spins the heart. I think it's worth pointing out also that hindering doubt is not the same as questioning doubt. Like doubt as a hindrance leads to uh, freezing and giving up. Doubt can carry us right out of practice, right out of the retreat. Uh, questioning doubt is a kind of healthy doubt that inspires the impulse to learn more, to look more closely, to explore more deeply. Um, many antidotes to doubt, and I'm sure all of us will share some. I'm going to share two briefly. Uh, one is to see it for what it is, to see it as a hindrance. There's a view, there's a thought, there's an impulse associated with that thought, and then there's a manifestation in the body. Restlessness and doubt are very, very connected. We get restless, so we doubt. Aversion and doubt get... And we're just really not liking it here, so that manifests in um, giving up in some way. Uh, and, as, and as has been noted, uh, one of the antidotes to doubt is faith or trust. 
or confidence. Um, and everyone in this room has some measure of faith. Because if you didn't, you wouldn't be here. No one would commit to a week of this unless you had some intuition, at least, that this is forward-leading and beneficial. And it really just takes that seed of doubt to sustain the practice. And the more and more you practice, the more and more you see your own wisdom blossoming, the teachings become more clear, you begin to see the fruits of the practice. I remember when my road rage disappeared. (laughs) It just disappeared. Like it wasn't a project, it wasn't on the agenda, this retreat, get rid of road rage. It just, uh, someone did something crazy, like went through five lanes of traffic, almost cut me off, and and my heart just went, oh, God, I hope they're okay. Like they're really rushing, you know, went to a place of compassion. Those kinds of experiences really inspire a kind of faith, like this practice is worthwhile. About three and a half years ago, I had the incredible experience of being with my mother at the moment of her transition. And uh, it was so poignant, you know, that one moment my mom was there, I was chanting to her at three in the morning, and then I saw her take her last breath, and then all of a sudden, like, where did mom go? Like, it was a very, very palpable feeling of, and these words that I didn't even know I knew from the Dhammapada came in my head, all, all too soon this body will lie on the ground, cast aside, deprived of consciousness like a useless scrap of wood. And um, so practice I've been doing um, before then, but even more strongly since then, is, is called the five subjects for frequent recollection. I talked with some of you in the groups about this. So it's done as a chant, and I'm just going to chant it to you. I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond dying. All that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise will become separated from me. That's the harsh reality of this realm. And then, it, and then it pivots. I am the owner of my kama, heir to my kama, born of my kama, related to my kama. Whatever kama I shall do, for good or for ill, Of that I will be the heir. And this chant, for me, is it reminds me that this life is fleeting. The experience I had with my mother, you know, she was only 73 when she died, but one of the last things she said to me was like, where did my life go? It's like the blink of an eye. 
And so remembering the, the realities of this realm that we often try to pretend we have a culture that sort of denies aging and is squeamish about death, uh, to be open-eyed to that reality. And then the final subject of recollection is how do we step into our own agency to make the most of this life? I also am fond of technology, so I have this app on my phone that's called We Croak. And five times a day, I get notifications on my watch that say, don't forget, you're going to die. <laughs> and uh, it's so liberating when I'm in a moment of constriction or confusion or some petty argument with someone or something, and I get this... Okay, <laughs> I can chill. Like, this is something I'm going to be worried about on my deathbed? Probably not. So there's a, there's a Pali word, um, sambega or samwega, that, um, well, I'll give you a definition that comes from uh, Tensara Bhikkhu. It's the oppressive sense of shock, dismay, and alienation it comes with realizing the futility and meaningness of life as it's normally lived. A chastening sense of our own complacency and foolishness in having let ourselves live so blindly. And an anxious sense of urgency in trying to find a way out of this meaningless cycle. And that was very much the experience I had at the moment of my mother's passing. It's like this incredible sense of the preciousness of life, the limit, the limited time we have and wanting to make the most of it, to seize each day, to cherish each moment. This, this sambega, you know, which happens in times of loss, sometimes it happens every time I go on a long retreat, sort of like you watch your mind for two months and then you realize the futility of normal ways of being. Um, sometimes we tap into this just if we're really connected to a lot of suffering that's happening in the world. We just see like how messed up the world is. And that creates a kind of energy, a kind of urgency, a kind of prioritization or reprioritization of how we want to spend our time. The Buddha said, meditate now, lest you later regret it. And when we add this energy, this urgency to even a tiniest seed of faith, it helps that faith blossom. Being a teacher has been, uh, has produced so much faith in me because retreat after retreat, class after class, program after program, I see the beautiful transformations in people. This is not the same group that came in, whatever it was, six days ago, fidgeting and restless and uh, just seeing it happen over and over again has inspired faith. I'll end with a quote about faith. Faith is a state of openness or trust. A person who is fanatic in matters of religion and clings to certain ideas about the nature of God and the universe becomes a person who has no faith at all. They're just holding on tight to views. The attitude of faith is to let go, open to the truth, 
whatever it might turn out to be. Thank you. And so they are mo- there are moments in our practice that that sense of San Vega, San Vega, thank you so much, Guru, lead us to a place of letting go. And it becomes so crystal clear that there is something to let go of. You know, it's like there's something that this heart knows. And I want to talk about letting go, renunciation, nikama. Uh, And doubt. Because then doubt definitely arises. Is this the right thing to do, depending what it is to let go of? And um, there is this sense of healthy doubt, healthy questioning, and moments in which it's not that you can see that the doubt is masquerade by maybe other hindrance. It's masquerading uh, <clears throat> whatever we're deciding to let go of in that moment. Um, Maybe um, masquerade by doubt instead instead of um, supported by wisdom. So there may be moments in which I have been on retreat, and I'm like, oh my gosh, nothing is happening. According to expectations of this dear mind, nothing is happening. You know, all these different things, what I'm doing here, I'm just, I'm not going to say it, just that you stay here until the end of the retreat. But, you know, it's like, am I really supposed to be here? And then, you know, after I take whatever action I take, and I look back, and I re-examine, like the Buddha said to his son, look at the actions that you have taken, before, in the middle, or after. For some actions, I have, like, look at them, reflect on them after taking them. And I'm like, oh, this was was led by, by an emotion, a very strong emotion of fear. This was, I, uh, maybe I was resisting something else. I was resisting facing other things. And so doubt came and said, just don't don't look at don't look at these emotions. Just go ahead and do whatever you need to do to not not go there. And so there are other times in which it is very clear, at least for me, for example, when I was working full time, um, 
that the practice was calling me so strongly. And I just wanted to go on long retreats, you know, months retreats. And it was, oh my goodness. It was a, just counting the hours of vacations to put them on retreat. Being on retreat became so precious. Even the hardest moments became so precious that every single moment that I had free, I was like, okay, this is going to go on retreat. This is going to go on retreat. And I just didn't have like an intellectual explanation for it. And then doubt will come up. Oh, you can do that next year. Oh, you can do something shorter. At some point, there's some actions or some clarity of intentions and motivations that face us in a way that it face our integrity. And in that moment, doubt disappears. And for me, it was like that. I just couldn't deny anymore. This is what I, 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 there's a call, there's something here. I just want to practice. I just want to practice. And, and so then the healthy questioning, okay, is this possible? How I'm going to do this? And just all these different, different ways of really taking care, taking care of, of this being, okay, what I'm going to do when, you know, when I'm not on retreat and if I leave my job, how can I get something else? Well, it ended up letting go completely and living a nomadic life for the past five, six years. And um, and so this sense of this, this doubt sometimes is like a messenger. It's like a messenger, is it okay? Or, you know, how much involvement, my Bruni, the, the, the identity, self-identity, how much is involved here versus letting, letting the intention and something else. It's like sometimes the Dharma knows better than us. Just, it just knows better than us. And so there's a letting go that happens sometimes that the, the release that we just don't even plan it. Don't even like Ulo was saying, it just disappears. It just, it's just there's a clinging to security that it just disappeared. It, it's like it, it's a reframe, inner safety, safety has been refrained in this mind-heart. Security, what is really needed, what I really like. Can I really, you know, what bed can I sleep, you know, where can I be, where can I, you know, it's like life becomes so simple. So simple. And part of that clarity comes from really seeing the relation, how it is that we're relating to this visitor of doubt and any other hindrances that come with. Doubt comes with other hindrances too. 
But in that first moment, <clears throat> before it becomes a hindrance, just at least to see, oh, it's, it's here, it's not here. It vanishes, like the Buddha says, like what, what, what makes it arise? What makes it, you know, disappear? How it vanishes? Watch it, watch it. And sometimes we just don't see it. Notice when it's absent. And so for me, it has been replaced with this letting go, deep letting go. The letting go that we notice when there is the lightness. The lightness in this body, mind, heart. If I can see sometimes, if I want to let it go of something and I still some, feel some heaviness, feel something like it's like, did I let, you know, okay, I'm going to let, I'm going to do, there's some heaviness after letting go, I have not let go fully. That's the one, that's what, you know, if I would like you to remember something about letting go is that. If it feels lighter, it's like, yes, and letting go into freedom, letting go into happiness, letting go into trust. And like there's a beautiful poem that talks about letting go. It says, you know, we just don't have to call our best friends to say, I'm going to let go. You just don't notice. You don't advertise it. It just happens. And you notice in the, the lightness and the freedom and the, the confidence that comes in of, with letting go. So watching the relationship of doubt and how it guides you into what actions that support that letting go or continuing clinging or continuing building doubt in a way that is not healthy questioning. Thank you. Yeah, when I'm, we we talked about doubt and what are the, what's our go-to practice or um, or way that we we work with doubt. I had talked about uh, spiritual friendship. <clears throat> Excuse me. And when I think about doubt for myself, and then also for um, folks and friends that I'm in sangha with share a few that are in common rotation. Um, just the uncertainty of the path, you know, whether the Buddhist path is right for us or, you know, whether we're capable of, of following it. Um, uncertainty about the teachings, you know, how true are the Buddhist teachings and how well, how well do we truly understand them? There's uncertainty about ourselves. We may doubt our own capacity to achieve liberation, and um, are we good enough? In the Samyutta Nikaya, one of the Buddha's discourses, uh, the Buddha says, friendship is not half of the holy life, uh, but all of it. It's all of the holy life. 
Um, the Buddha recognized that everyone needs support uh, to stay on this path. And that you know, the Sangha is a group of friends that can support us. It can be really difficult to sustain the path of you know, following the precepts, um, practicing regular meditation, um, working, working with the hindrances um, without, without spiritual friends. Uh, spiritual friends within the Sangha can help us to overcome doubt by supporting us, by guiding us and encouraging us. When we're surrounded by spiritual friends who believe in us, who not only believe in us, but believe in the path, uh, it becomes easier for us to trust ourselves and to trust our own, our own intuition. You know, if we have doubt in our abilities, our spiritual friends can give us kind and honest feedback about our blind spots and what areas we need to focus on in our practice. You know, especially folks who have been on the path, who have more experience and who are more knowledgeable. Um, And if we're struggling and feeling lost and confused, you know, our spiritual friends can go ahead and offer offer us compassion, understanding, and kindness. They can help us find strength and inspiration to to keep on going. You know, when we're surrounded by people who are also committed to the Dharma, uh, they can support us in um, being courageous and and confident in our path. I was in Sangha uh, with spiritual friends right before coming to this retreat. And uh, the question that we were exploring, just the prompt was, you know, what are, what are we currently working with? And I was sharing that I was working with doubt. I have a lifestyle that, is, that involves a lot of physical activity. You know, if I'm not doing yoga, I'm running. And if I'm not running, I'm biking. If I'm not biking, I'm dancing. I'm not dancing, I'm doing martial arts. If I'm not doing martial arts, I'm hiking. You know, I have just a very rigorous physical lifestyle. You know, that's, that keeps, that's balance for me. And I have this experience the last couple of years where I have this recurring um, right shoulder injury that's actually giving me some grief. And I was sharing about that and, you know, my doubt that was coming up was like, how am I going to go ahead and support um, the BIPOC Sangha, this retreat, with this shoulder? And then my Dharma sibling was, you know, change and impermanence is part of the practice and, and include it. I was just like, oh, you know, that helped me really, you know, explore what's the middle, finding the middle. And it gave me permission um, and clarity and confidence to go ahead and you know, work with and be kind to this body and also support you all.
you know. So whatever I was leading with you, whatever practice I was leading with you this past week might not have looked like the last BIPOC retreat, and that's okay. You know, so, you know, how that, I was able to go ahead and get that, that mirror, that feedback from my Dharma sibling. I needed, we need, I, need the, I needed that reminder to honor the changes in my body and that honoring the changes does not mean that I can't still support you all. I want to share a poem by Donna Folds called uh, Sangha. Teach me what I cannot learn alone. Let us share what we know and what we cannot fathom. Speak to me of mysteries and let us never lie to one another. May our fierce and tender longing fuel the fire in our souls. When we stand side by side, Let us dare to focus our desire on the truth. May we be reminders, each for the other, that the path of transformation passes through the flames. To take one step is courageous. To stay on the path day after day, choosing the unknown and facing yet another fear. That is nothing short of grace. Thank you, Jonathan. It's been a minute since I've... (laughs) Well, you know, as we were thinking about doubt and we were going to do this panel... What I realize is that doubt has been my lifelong companion. You know that doll or that raggedy Ann or whatever it was or the blanket you even took to college, right? (laughs) Or the piece of something, that favorite something. Maybe not favorite, but comfortable. That has been doubt. It almost became this cloak that I would put on. I was like, oh, okay, doubt. Hi. Right. I almost welcomed it. Until then I got, I felt a little uncertain I shouldn't be embracing doubt. And doubt has for so long in my life has mirrored back to me my limitations. It's told me I can't. So may you question all of those things that I'm sure it has happened for you in the last six days. Doubt in practice has just kept creeping up, creeping out, creeping in, creeping around. It has risen oftentimes in my meditation and has shaken me to my knees. Sometimes I didn't even know what it was. I mean, it was a thought. It was an emotion. It was a feeling. And there it was, doubt. And it's so interesting that Bruni just mentioned masquerading. 
doubt comes in all these different masks. And most commonly, at least in my practice, doubt has shown up as fear and has really looked me squarely in the face. And fear then has mass, fear, doubt has masqueraded as fear, and fear has masqueraded itself as doubt. It's just this intertwining that has happened and has caused me pause. And of course, I'm the first person to say, pause is good. But when it begins to impede in the process of this awakening mind and this awakening body and this awakening heart, it's worth looking at. But it's not looking at it in a way that I'm detached from it at first. It has so beautifully Booker did the other day when she held her hand up, remember? And she could see everything in her hand. That's what I've really come to with doubt. I've had to hold it here so I could see it. How it has impeded this, this way in which I am mm, sitting in the fire, the fire within so that I can begin to take the steps to release this fear and this doubt as it's arisen. And sometimes, as we talked about, you, I said this oftentimes in our groups, we came to this retreat with one bag. We thought we were packing really tightly. We didn't want to bring a big bag. We kind of brought an overnight bag, thought we could put it all in there. And then when you got here... You sat down in your seat, you found your, your cushion and so forth, and you looked down and you had a duffo bag over here. Didn't know you brought it in, but it was all of the things that you brought in from your life. The worry. The questions. The doubt. And some of what is in the bags that you bring in are our conditioned world. We're faced with so much. I think I told you I have a, um, two grandsons. One is six, one is 11. And one of the things for me that you know, I think about in, in our worldly conditions is what do I leave them as an inheritance? It's always on my mind. It's a little bit of that worry because inheritance is you know, further off but it feels like I want to make sure that I'm offering them the opportunity to be able to see themselves in the mirror. So that when Calvin says, Nana, what have you done? I'm not doubting what my answer is. I'm clear with uncertainty, with certainty. And so often when I'm in practice, what I'm not really remembering is that I hold the, remember, the, the remedy. It's really within my grasp. And yet it feels so far away. And with the practice... There's so many ways in which we've been talking about this, the way hindrances arise, and we have an opportunity to investigate, 
to identify, to name it, setting it down, seeing it dissipate, all of those ways in which then we take the next step to opening. And that comes with wise effort and wise understanding. We need to take that, the next step to do it. And it's so close. And yet we're so unfamiliar with it because we're wrapped in its fear blanket that we don't go ahead and really put the glasses on, which I'll do right now because I can't read what I'm doing. Right? can't see you, but I can see this page. And we put the glasses on that are not rose-colored, but we put the glasses on that allows us to see. I was needing to understand that there was a prescription for allowing doubt to coexist in all of the mental, emotional, psychological, spiritual, and heart aspects of my life. I realized that understanding where doubt arises, how it impedes, seeing it arise, naming it. Oh, hi, doubt. There you are. Sit right here for a moment. That doubt was also becoming my medicine. It's the only way that I could release, as we were talking about as Gulu, and and Bruni said, this letting go. I could release the grip of fear. It was my medicine. It is my medicine. And really, doubt lingers until we acknowledge it. Or somebody else sees it in the mirror towards you, as Jonathan said, Kalyanamita, a spiritual friend. Doubt becomes the, allows also as medicine, the exploration to begin to look at my life's conditionality. So that definitely when Calvin says, Nana, I can say yes, Calvin. I'm not separate from it. Like that doll that I took to college. But now I can understand it with wise view and and a better lens. I don't have to be afraid of it. And it doesn't have to take such a grip on my heart and mind. It's medicine. Thank you, dear friends. That was so beautiful and so touching. So because I am the greedy type, 
I'm not going to speak to you about doubt per se, but about its antidote, which is faith. And we touched upon it this morning. For someone I don't think I... There you are. (laughs) We touched upon faith this morning. So I began my practice with a people of color sangha at New York Insight around... 2005, 2006. And I got there because after trying to extract myself from the fashion industry in New York, which I had been working in for close to a decade, I was trying to understand um, suffering. It seemed to be everywhere. And even in the glitter and glam of the fashion industry, there was so much suffering there as well. And so I got a part-time job at this little holistic center in the middle of New York City, and that's where I met Stan Greer, who was um, a bodhisattva, a big brother, brother, almost uncle type. Um, And we would stay up late after we closed the center and we would talk about, I was a vegan at the time, we'd talk about like, you know, having a vegan diet and non-harming and um, he really inspired me to become a yoga teacher and, and one day in one of our late night talks he said, I think that you're ready to explore meditation practice and he invited me to go sit with him at New York Insight. And my memory of it and I've checked the store with other people who were there, and they're like, yeah, that's what happened. I felt like he sort of swaddled me like a newborn baby, like really tightly wrapped me, and sort of handed me over to my teacher, Gina Sharp. (laughs) And people were like, yeah, it was kind of exactly like that. Just like, what's happening? Just... (sighs) And... um, As I would go to the People of Color Sangha like every week or every two weeks... I had no idea what's going on. I didn't understand the teachings. Completely confused, disoriented. And Gina kept saying to me, don't worry about getting it. Just allow the Dharma to wash over you. This went on for a couple of years because I loved the way that I felt when I was there at that Sangha. It was such beauty and a sense of safety that I didn't know I was needing in my life. It was so tender and so loving, and I just felt like this warm embrace every time I walked into the room. And so um, a few years into practicing we decided as a collective decision that I was ready to sit my first retreat. I was terrified. And on that first retreat, I met Bhante Buddha and Larry Yang. What? (laughs) Um, And Gina Sharp was also a teacher on that retreat. And I was blown away by Bhante Buddha because I had never seen a black man in robes. 
I'd never seen a Buddhist monastic who was black. Not only was he black, he was from Uganda. He was African, like black, black. <laughs> and I was like, I didn't know this was even possible. And I was, and he's just the embodiment of joy. And I was like, I don't know what's going on. I don't know what is happening, but I want, I want that. I want that. And so uh, towards the end of the retreat, Bhante says, I announced this to the whole room, I'm building a Buddhist retreat center <laughs> um, in Uganda. Everyone should come. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go do that. And so, again, my very first retreat, okay? So about six months later, I quit my job. I took the very, very tiny savings. I had literally enough savings just to buy an airplane ticket. That was it. And I went to Uganda to sit a, a private retreat with a monk. And my parents were like, you're going what? To do what? With who? <laughs> And I was like, yeah, I'm going to Uganda to sit a private treat with a monk. And I was like, this is what I'm doing. There was just no doubt in my mind that that's what needed to happen. And so this is what we refer to as bright faith. And so bright faith is this faith that is not quite your own yet. You are so enlivened and inspired and your mind is blown by another person, by words you said, the energy they have. And I just was in love with the Dharma because I could see the possibility through how Bhante showed up in the world. And so I was there for a couple of weeks. I was coming back to New York in sight. I'm sorry, New York City in February without a job <laughs> and no money. Um, I was teaching in jails a couple of times a week, but it wasn't enough money to really you know, support me. And I was like, oh my gosh. So I needed advice. I needed support, some guidance of what to do next. And who was practicing with me on that retreat? We, uh, Bonte had this thing called Peace School. And so every day, like 30 children would come to the center. And the center was still under construction, mind you. So um, all these children would come, and we'd all sit in the dirt, and Bonte would give them stories. And, and I would teach yoga to anybody who wanted to come. And so um, I was with a lot of very small children, a couple of folks who didn't speak English, but we really, really like had this deep heart connection. And um, for some reason, there was like one cow. I, I don't. I never got the story, but there was one cow that was on the property. And next to the cow, there was like one chicken, and they seemed to be like buddies. I don't. And then there was a, a dog, who looked almost almost like a. He was like a wild dog, almost like a coyote, you know? This beautiful dog that would come every morning and would sit next to Bonte when we meditated. Then when we were done, this dog would leave. And so when it came time for me to ask um, about what to do next in my life, 
you know, going back to New York City as a fairly younger person, um, my options were a monk, <laughs> a cow, a chicken, or a dog. And I thought Bonte might be the best person to give me advice. And so I said, Bonte, like, I'm so inspired. Like, I'm so alive with the Dharma. And I don't know what to do with it. Like, it's like, I'm like so bubbly about it. And I don't know where to put my energy or what to do. Or how do I even go and find a job that's going to like make sense with like my love of, of the Dharma? And the advice he gave me was, your practice has to be your life and your life has to be your practice. There can be no separation. And I thought to myself, that is the worst advice I've ever heard in my life. <laughs> I want it concrete. First you do this, and then you do this. And, but just, I had no idea what that meant. And I trusted Bonte, like explicitly. I had such faith in him that what I was like, I'm going to follow whatever you say. So this is bright faith, just kind of riding on the coattails of another person, not having my own faith in myself. But it was the kind of faith that I needed that kind of sparked something in me that asked me to keep exploring to see what else was there. And so I came back to New York and I w began to move into the next phase, which Bruni and, and Gulubo spoke to, which is the questioning phase. And I was like, what does this look like? Like, how can my life be my practice, my practice be my life? How can I never leave it down, but to always be in practice? And so I talked to Gina about it, and she said, well, why don't you take one of the lists of the Buddha's teachings and live that practice in your everyday life. And I was like, that's a great idea because like, I am on fire about this, but I still got some questions. <laughs> I was like, does this really work when I'm not sitting on the cushion? When I'm engaging in my everyday life, when I am triggered by people, when I have been harmed by people, when my depression arises, when my ADHD has me just completely unable to function in the world, when my anger arises, when I show up in activist spaces, how does my practice, like, can it hold all of that? And so I started with the Eightfold Path. And I spent a year with the Eightfold Path, just checking to see what it was like for me to use wise speech, wise action. As I was looking for work, what does wise livelihood look like to me? And so by, I began to use the Eightfold Path as almost like a litmus test as I moved through and navigated the world in, my, in alignment with the Buddha's teachings. And I also want to say something that what I love, I, I don't remember where I read this, but 
somewhere it said that doubt is um, a, the proper Buddhist attitude. So having a mind that has doubt, that is inquisitive, that questions, that says, prove it to me. I dare you. That is the proper attitude to come into the practice with. Instead of me questioning, me doubting, me being like, I'm alive, but, but is, is it? And so I have the right attitude. And so that was the second part of cultivating faith, which is going through that questioning phase, which I might still be in just a little bit, <laughs> like in certain aspects, but not, not fully. And there's this... Uh, Something that I love, um, the Kalama Sutta. Excuse me. And so, in the, the Kalama Sutta is from the, uh, the Anguttara Nikaya, and this is um, a collection of teachings for householders. And so, it's speaking directly to people who um, are householders to us. And it says, um, Don't go by reports, by legends, by traditions, by scripture, by logical conjecture by inference, by analogies, by agreement through pondering views, by probability or by the thought. This contemplative is our teacher. When you know for yourselves that these mental qualities are skillful, these mental qualities are blameless, these mental qualities are praised by the wise, These mental qualities, when adopted and carried out, lead to welfare and to happiness. Then you should enter and remain in them. And so what this is asking of us is to know for ourselves. To have the experience and to know for ourselves. Not to believe what our teachers tell us not to believe what we read in scriptures or in books, not to believe what we hear in Dharma talks, but to really go and have the lived experience that we can know for ourselves. And that moves us away from bright faith, away from questioning faith, and into a maturity or a faith that is, um, that is verified because we know for ourselves. And so during the Buddha's time, personal verification was really valued. People didn't care if you could quote this and quote that. They were really more concerned with how you were showing up in your lives. Were you really living the teachings as you engage with someone who has stolen your cow. <laughs> they wanted to know that you're, you're really in alignment with the values of these teachings. And so faith in a teacher was actually considered less valuable than faith in yourself. So when you yourselves know these things are good, these things are not blamable. These things are praised by the wise, undertaken and observed. These things lead to benefit and happiness. Enter on and abide in them. Mm-hmm. 
So live them, set up shop. Let that be the divine abode in which you live in. And it's terrifying to go from bright faith to questioning faith into verified faith. It's terrifying because fear arises, doubt arises. Pema Chodron says that fear is a natural reaction to moving closer to your truth. And the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. says that faith is like taking the first step, even when you can't see the rest of the staircase. And my path in the Dharma has been like, I don't know what's going to happen, but here we go. And just like stepping into the abyss. But also knowing for some reason, having this faith that I was going to get caught. That I was going to get caught. And so the Pali word, again, P-A-L-I, the language, the language that the Buddha's teachings were transcribed, written down in, you know, several hundred years after his death. Um, and so the word faith in Pali is sada, S-A-D-D-H-A, sada. And the etymology for the word is connected, connected to the Latin base core, C-O-R, which as we know is the base of courage. It is the base word of corazón, the Spanish word for heart. And so what I love about faith is that um, it's more of a matter of the heart than our intellect. We can't read our way and study our way into faith. Faith is the act of a courageous heart. It is the act of a courageous heart that keeps saying, what's next? What's next? And not being so narrow that we have this goal that we're moving towards, but that we are living our lives through an open heart. We know the felt sense of our body when we are aligned with our practice, when we are aligned with the truth, right? And so I kept moving through my life and touching in saying, is this aligned with my practice? And it was a very clear yes or a very clear no. There was no ambiguity because I had put myself on this path. Not knowing where it was going to lead, what that meant, I had no idea. But I just knew that I was on this journey, on this path. And so I am. Um, uh, I lost Stan, my mentor. A few years into my practice, um, 
He did take me on my very first retreat, so we were there together. And then the next five years, he sat as an ancestor right over my right shoulder. So palpable. And uh, the last words he said to me was, um, there's his training at Spirit Rock. (laughs) Caught the mindful yoga and meditation training. You should apply for it. You should demand a scholarship because you're worth it. And that was the last thing I ever heard from him. And so at this point, I think I was moving more towards my my verified faith. My practice had matured enough that I felt really confident in my practice. And after I was done with that treat, I kept being invited to offer a movement on retreat, (laughs) you know, year after year after year. And then I was invited into the community Dharma leaders training here at Spirit Rock. And I was like, this is beautiful. Like, I love this. And then I was invited into teacher training. And I'm like, this is great. And then about two years into teacher training, and this is 10 years of training at this point, I thought... I think they expect me to actually be a Dharma teacher. (laughs) Like, it didn't really occur to me. Like, literally two years into, like, eight years into my training, I'm like, I think I'm supposed to be a a Dharma teacher. Um, (sighs) And so Sharon Salzberg has wrote a very unknown and beautiful and tiny book called Faith. Very few people know about this book. It just kind of slipped under the radar after Metta, you know, loving kindness, Metta. But Faith is this gorgeous little book that Sharon wrote. And she says that mature faith is anchored in our own experience of the truth, centered in the deeper understanding of the nature of the mind and body, that we come to in meditation practice. This deeper level of faith is called verified faith, which means it is grounded in our own experience. The inspiration and confidence we feel arises from our own experience, rather than coming from someone outside of ourselves. So when we move, towards our doubt, when we um, we turn towards our fears, to see them, to cultivate this really intimate relationship, um, to develop this really intimate relationship with them, we can see that doubt can be a teacher inviting us to question, to Stop riding on the the tailwinds of someone else who's already has their own faith, but to question, to keep diving in, and to dive into our own um, verified faith. Ah. And so I've gone over by just a few minutes. I got a little wrapped up there. So the point I just want to say here is that you don't just say, faith, right? It's not just poof, and now I have faith. 
So sometimes faith begins by just taking a breath in, breathing a breath in, knowing that you will also breathe that same breath out. It means that when I can explore my faith by reaching down to the earth and knowing that the ground is going to be beneath me. So we can tap into these little moments of faith throughout the day. They don't have to be these huge things. And then we have our bright faith, our questioning faith, and eventually we arrive at our mature or our verified faith. Thank you so much, dear ones, for your kind attention and listening to the Dhamma this afternoon. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.